Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, you can turn to Luke chapter 23. If you'd like to follow along in scripture this morning. This week, we're starting our series that will be leading us all the way through to Easter. Is this week and for the subsequent weeks, all the way through till Easter Sunday, we're going to be participating in this series. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to, to start our journey with Jesus and the cross from Jesus on the cross. Um, we are going to take a look at some of the things that Jesus says while he's on the cross and, and what they mean for us and how we can understand what he said in the light of our lives today. And, and we're going to look at them in somewhat of a chronological order. There, there's a few things that Jesus said that we're going to group together, or there might be a couple things that, that we're not going to be able to talk about all of them, but we're going to take a look at the words of Jesus from the cross. Now, if you're unsure of who Jesus is and why he was on the cross, um, come and see me after the service, and I would be glad to share all of that with you and be glad to, to take you on that journey. But for, for our time together this morning, um, what we know is that Jesus has been sentenced to death, essentially under a charge of blasphemy essentially under a charge uh, of, of claiming to be God. It was against Jewish law for anyone who wasn't God to claim to be God. And so when Jesus said the things he said and did the things he did, the, the, the people, the, the religious establishment around him saw what he was doing and said, those are pretty God-like things. He's, he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. He's healing people. He, he's saying these things. And as he's saying these things, people are starting to follow him. And they're starting to believe that he's God. He's really becoming a public nuisance. Now, he hasn't done anything wrong other than allow people to believe that he's God and not correct them on that. And so they begin to pursue the, these, this idea that Jesus was a blasphemer. Now, of course, we shouldn't claim to be God if we're not God. But Jesus had one really large exception to that. He was God. And so... He's innocent of blasphemy because he is what they're accusing him of. You, you claim to be God. Yes. Because he was God. But they don't believe it. They don't buy it. They, they just, he's a public nuisance. He's causing trouble. People are believing him and they're starting to love their neighbors and be kind. And we don't want that. And so they, they, are, they are getting upset with Jesus. And eventually they lead him through sort of this kangaroo court, this sort of journey where, where it's a trial, but it's kind of a mock trial. And, and the, even the people holding the trial are saying, look, we can't find anything wrong that he did. But the crowd and the public pressure is just so great that eventually those who, who decide what happens to a man who's guilty of a crime decide 
that a man who they know isn't guilty of the crime still needs to be crucified. And so Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. Now, crucifixion was, was a, 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 ver, or a version of capital punishment that was used by the Romans. The Romans weren't the only ones who used it, but they were the ones who, who liked it the most. They were the ones who leaned into it the most, as other cultures would do it. But the Romans, they really saw crucifixion as, as their thing. Um, in, in crucifixion, a, a criminal would be tied or, or nailed to a large wooden cross or beam and left to hang there until eventual death from exhaustion and as, uh, asphyxiation. See, sometimes we think that when people die on the cross, it's from being crucified. But it's not actually the crucifixion that kills you. The crucifixion just makes it really, really, really difficult and painful to stay alive. And so as you hang on the cross, you're not going to die from the nails in your wrists. You're not going to die from the nails in your feet. That's not going to be what kills you. It's hanging on the cross and trying to breathe. It's hanging on the cross and, and your bones and, and your ligaments and, and all of the parts of your body that are, are left hanging and you're going to have to pull yourself up to try and get a breath. And as that's happening, it's hurting more and more and your body's getting weaker and weaker until eventually you essentially suffocate because you're too tired to breathe because it hurts too much to breathe. You don't suffocate from lack of oxygen. You suffocate because you can't bring yourself to breathe in anymore. And so you, you, you suffocate while you're just, just hanging there. Now, a couple of notes to help us what's understanding in this moment. Um, the, re the Romans used crucifixion in a couple of different ways. First, it was meant to be unspeakably cruel. Um, they knew that crucifixion was, was a, a terrible way to go. And they used it for that reason. Because what, when someone was crucified, really what they were doing with their crucifixion was making an example of them. Is they were making an example to say, you need to fall in line, you need to listen to us, or this is what could happen to you. So they did this thing that was, you know, in or unspeakably cruel, it was also mercilessly lingering. Um, as we just mentioned, it wasn't a quick process. Is is sometimes people would hang on a cross for days and days and days before their body would finally give out. And so it was meant to to, to look terrible but it was also meant to be experienced terrible. That if you were a troublemaker and you knew that crucifixion was potentially hanging over your head, you were meant to be aware that how, how difficult this was. It was also meant to be inescapably public. Again, to serve as an example or a warning for other people, crucifixions would take place in public places. Um, they, would, they would usually take place right outside the main city gate. So that as people would come and go from the city, they would be forced to see these things. 
And it was also meant to be publicly certifiable. So the, the, the public part of it was meant so that people would have to see it, but then also people would know that it happened and know that that person was dead. The death occurred visibly and undeniably on the cross so that everyone would know that they died. That it was meant to, to be a picture to everybody so there could be no confusion, there could be no wondering. Whatever happened to, no, everyone knew what happened to them. And so crucifixion was, always took place on a low hill outside of the main city gates. Be, because, like I say, it's a bottleneck. And so everybody comes in and everybody comes out and everybody has to see it. And so... As we, we, would we, be, we would be journeying with Jesus to the cross, we would, we would find that Jesus has been through his so-called trial of the Jewish leaders, multiple beatings, Pilate's verdicts, and now he's been nailed to a cross, hanging between two criminals who were, just, who were being justly punished for their crimes. More on them next week. But Jesus is forced to carry the horizontal piece of, the, of, the, of his cross to the place of his execution just outside of the, main gate of, or the main gate on the north of the city of Jerusalem. His clothes are being gambled for as he hangs hurt and humiliated for no other reason than that the leaders hated him. We're going to talk about the fact that they were gambling for his clothes and, and what that meant in terms of actually fulfilled prophecy from Psalm 22 in a couple of weeks. But Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And as Jesus is nailed on his cross and it's lifted high into place, Jesus' head and shoulders would have been about nine feet high as he's put on display for all to see. And he would have been looking out over all of those gathered to witness his death. The Roman soldiers who beat him and nailed him to the cross. The Jewish religious leaders who were plotting, planning, and their accusations were the reason that all of this was taking place. Those who had just finished beating him, mocking him, spitting in his face before handing him over to the Roman guard. And the gathered masses of people who had been shouting, crucify him. This is what Jesus would have seen as he, as he hung on the cross. And even though not all of them were the ones that, that physically drove the nails into Jesus, the Apostle Paul would later say in Acts chapter 2 that, that they indeed were the ones who crucified him. And so Jesus is crucified on a cross, publicly displayed as a picture of what it means when you're a troublemaker. And out he looks across this massive humanity that's gathered to witness this event. And it's into this very scene, as Jesus is raised up on his cross, that Jesus speaks his first words on the cross. And they're found in Luke chapter 23 starting at verse 33. And we'll say this. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Today we're going to look at the phrase, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's a remarkable thing that even in this moment, 
where Jesus is first introduced to this incredibly agonizing pain as a crowd has gathered. And the crowd was probably tremendously large because you remember just a week ago, the entire city came out to welcome Jesus in what we would call the triumphal entry, what we would call Palm Sunday. The entire town had come out to welcome him. Since then, the entire town has turned on him. And so as Jesus is being crucified, there's a large group that's gathered to watch him. And it's in this moment where we get one of the most, if not the most, clear picture of Jesus' heart. Jesus' concern wasn't for himself. It wasn't for his circumstances. He didn't look down from the cross and begin to, to contemplate the decisions that had led him to that place. He didn't hang on the cross and begin to wonder which of the legion of armies of angels that he should call down to fix this travesty. But the thing that flows out of Jesus' heart in, in this moment of undoubtedly excruciating emotional and physical pain is to look out on all of these faces and his heart is, Father, forgive them. He asked the Father to forgive the Roman soldiers who had mocked him, spit on him, beat him, yanked out his beard, whipped him, put a crown of thorns on his head, and nailed him to a cross. Jesus asked for forgiveness for the angry mob that had mocked him and called for his crucifixion. And yet he says, Father, forgive them. From the cross experiencing death in incredible, treacherous pain. And his response is to forgive. Jesus was willing to forgive them. Forgiveness was, in fact, the reason Jesus was on the cross. That the words, Father, forgive them, show the merciful heart of God. But there's actually a lot more taking place here that, that as we read this, if we don't fully go deep on everything that we can even miss that makes this even more meaningful. Not that there needs to be more meaning, but there, there is so much depth in this statement. When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, we see so many things about who Jesus is. In this moment, as Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, we read these verses about the coming Messiah. He was poured out his life until death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He, he was numbered with the guilty. He was seen as someone who was guilty. He was counted as guilty as Jesus hung on the cross, dying the death of a criminal. He was counted as one of the transgressors, but it goes more. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. Intercession means prayed for. 
And so we read that Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus said that one of the things the coming Messiah was going to do was he was going to be considered a lawbreaker. He was going to be considered a sinner. He was going to be considered as someone in the wrong. But as he's being counted as one of them, he will be praying for them. He was going to be killed like someone who deserved it, but he was going to be sinless. But he would pray for all of those who did deserve it. Isaiah says the Messiah would pray for those who were killing him. And from the cross, Jesus interceded for sinners. From the cross, Jesus prayed for those killing him. Well, there was more than just fulfilled prophecy. And we see in this picture that Jesus was doing, or Jesus was doing what he does now. He was doing then what he does for us now. See, all people enter this world, and, and it doesn't take us, we enter this world, and we're, we're separated and estranged from a holy God because of our sin. But scripture will tell us that because of the work of Jesus Christ, that, that he alone stands in, in the gap between God and man. He alone meets the righteous requirements of the law, opening the way of God's presence once and for all through his death on the cross and resurrection on the life, that we are able to access the Father because of the Son. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it will tell us today the risen, glorified Jesus remains their one meaning mediator between God and mankind. That Jesus' role is to provide the righteousness for us to be able to be in relationship with our Father. That our forgiveness comes through Jesus. And so we see Jesus doing that very thing at this moment. As he's dying for the sins of mankind, Jesus comes to the Father on behalf of all of those who are killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Father, don't count their sins against them. Father, don't view them through the lens of what they're doing. Father, forgive them. See, Jesus did that then and Jesus does that now for you and for me. That we talked about a few weeks ago how we can boldly enter into the presence of the throne room of God, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. And so here we see Jesus allowing even these people to be forgiven, the ones who killed him. And we also see in this moment that Jesus practiced what he preached. Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, puts into practice one of the principles that Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount. See, one of the things that's one of the easiest things to do in the world is to tell other people what to do. It's really easy to give advice. There's almost not a problem in the world that you couldn't give advice on. There's almost not a problem in the world that you couldn't tell someone else what to do. But one of the most difficult things in the world is to take our own advice. 
One of the most difficult things in the world is to practice what we preach. That I can stand and I can say, you need to love your neighbor. You need to forgive. You need to be an example to the world around you of who Jesus is. And I can say that as the pastor. And it's one thing for me to tell you to do that. It's a whole other thing when somebody cuts me off in traffic. Because, brother, I'm justified. You know, the, 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 it's one thing to tell someone else, you know, you need, to, you need to forgive. We need to walk in grace. We need to walk from a place where we're, we are going to be pillars of virtue and light in the world. But it's a whole other thing for me to actually do that when I walk out my life. But Jesus would say this in the Sermon on the Mount, back, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He would say, You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now Jesus, in this moment, if ever there was a justifiable hate your enemy, you know, Jesus could say, friends, I know I said that. Clearly this is an exception. Clearly this is an exception. But Jesus will say, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As Jesus was being killed, he prayed for those who were killing him. As Jesus was being persecuted, he loved his enemies and he prayed for those who were persecuting him. Jesus practiced what he preached. In a moment where every single one of us would probably bend over backwards to justify away Jesus' anger, he loved his enemies. Along with the willingness to forgive, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. See, those who put Jesus on the cross were so unaware of the importance of their actions. The soldiers personally had nothing against Jesus. They, they were simply following orders. This, this is how they normally would treat condemned men, and they probably didn't give any thought whatsoever to whether or not they deserved it. In fact, they probably would go out of their way to not think about that, because when your job is to nail people to a cross, the last thing you want to do is to spend a bunch of time thinking about whether or not they actually deserve it. It's probably a lot better for your mental health to just be like, yes, they're guilty. They didn't know they were, were killing the Son of God. The, the mob didn't really know who it was that they were shouting crucify him at. The Jewish leaders had deceived them into believing that Jesus was a fake and a troublemaker. They, they thought they were removing someone who was looking to steal earthly authority. They thought that Jesus was a threat because he was looking to establish an earthly kingdom. But they missed the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. Because they missed his purpose in life, they didn't understand his purpose in death. Jesus was not dying because of them. Hear this, Jesus was not dying because of them. Jesus was dying for them. 
Jesus wasn't dying because of these men's actions, these people's actions. Jesus was dying for these people. He didn't come to remove the teachers of the law. He came to redeem them. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to save Rome. And fortunately for the chief priests and those in the crowd that day, they had no clue why Jesus was really dying. And so when we read Jesus not only saying, Father, forgive them, but Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, Jesus revealed his infinite mercy. He still loved them and wanted to see these people forgiven. Jesus gives us this incredible picture of what forgiveness looks like. How in the world are we able to stand and say, I'm not going to forgive them when Jesus is literally bleeding and desperate for breath as he lifts his beaten body, broken up and down on the spikes in his feet and in his wrists, and the first words that he prays are for forgiveness. What a picture for us to understand. See, our society has lost the concept of forgiveness. Is, is we, we, we are taught you don't need to forgive. We're, we're taught to cut people out. We're taught to, we're taught to move on. We're, we're taught to, to become offended. We're, we're, we're taught to, to disagree with people, but not look for reconciliation, not to offer forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't given a second thought because we're taught to, to only look to to connect with people in a way that, that doesn't require us to do something like that. And instead of focusing on our Savior, his sacrifice and his incredible example of showing love, grace, and forgiveness to the people that literally hated him and were killing him, we can get focused on bashings or burnings or cancelings or anything to give us an air of superiority over our reactions. But can you imagine a world where we take this example and actually follow through on it? Where, where we can show grace and forgiveness to someone when we feel wronged. Jesus, our, our Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, could have come down from the cross at any time. The, the, the soldiers would mock him and they would say, come down from the cross. If, if you're really, God, you come down from, Jesus could have come down from the cross. It was within his power. Jesus, when, when Pilate would question him about his, his kingdom and he would say, look, if this was a war that I wanted to fight, my father would send down legions of angels and all the might of Rome couldn't stand up to God. But he chose to take our sin onto himself so that we could have eternity with him in heaven. He chose to forgive. He chose to fulfill God's plan of salvation for us. And he also showed unlimited love and compassion through his humble, loving, and compassionate prayer. In his great love, 
he gave his life so that we might have forgiveness. So we'd no longer be separated from God upon receiving his free gift of salvation. If you've already received his gift of salvation, may you never take the love, forgiveness, and compassion that he has for you. May we never take it for granted. May you never forget that when he died, he died for your sins. It was for your sins, and even when you sin today, he still forgives you because of his complete sacrifice for you. May you be moved all the more by the compassion, grace, and love he has for you as we reflect on the prayer he prayed. As the prayer was for you, as well in part, it was our sin that put him there. Jesus, who died from the cross and rose from the dead, is still willing to forgive today. He's still praying that prayer on your behalf today. Whether you know him or not, Jesus is still praying that prayer over you and your life today. Father, forgive them. He has not lost any amount of mercy or grace, but is ready to pour it out on all who call on him. His mercies are new every morning. You can be confident that if you ask, he will forgive. After all, if he could forgive the ones who set him up for death on a cross, those who nailed him to the cross, those who mocked him for being on the cross, those who thought he's getting what he deserves, he can certainly forgive you. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord Jesus, as we read these words, as we read this account of you on the cross, we are awestruck by your heart. God, our, our words fail us as we attempt to try and even understand the heart of mercy and grace, the heart of compassion and love that you expressed when you prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, how can we as people even begin to reconcile that understanding? And yet, God, this love that's so far beyond us, God, it's the love you have for each one of us. God, for each one gathered here today, each one watching online, each one listening, God, you have forgiveness for each one of us. And so, God, we know that one of the greatest tricks that the enemy has, one of his most powerful weapons is guilt and shame. One of his most effective ways to drive a wedge between us and you is to cause us to feel guilty for the things we've done. And yet, God, in this moment, what we don't see is even a Savior that says, if you want to be forgiven, come to me. 
But God, in this moment, we see a Savior that says, Father, forgive them. God, your, your love is not just a reactionary love. God, I thank you that your love is proactive, that your love reaches for us, that your love wants to pull us into you, that you don't just wait for us to come to you, but God, I thank you that you come to us. And so, God, I pray for each one gathered here today that may be struggling with guilt or shame in their life. May the love of God be extended into their life in this moment. And in the name of Jesus, we pray that that guilt and that shame would be removed, that it would be taken away, that they wouldn't walk in guilt, that they wouldn't walk in shame, that they wouldn't walk in fear or condemnation. God, that your grace, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness would extend to us all today. God, I thank you so much that for the story of my life, God, you have been such an incredible God of forgiveness. And God, I pray that you would help us each to live each day, walk out each day, knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that you have unlimited levels of love and compassion for us. God, I thank you for your heart that was on display this morning. And God, I pray that for each one of us, we would be able to see, understand, and or apply that heart in our lives in a new way today. And that we would be able to walk away this morning different than when we came in because of your heart of compassion for us. Lord Jesus, we do our best to love you. And we know that you love us perfectly. And God, I'm so grateful for your love in our lives today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. On a hill far away stood a Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. Tell my trophies at last I lay down. I will Stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. On that old rugged cross, Jesus suffered and died. 
to pardon and say.